Good morning, or good evening if you're watching this from the United States, and welcome to the United States Study Center webinar on the launch of Dr. John Lee's new report, U.S.-China Economic Distancing in an Era of Great Power Rivalry and COVID-19. I'm Charles Edel, and I'm a senior fellow here at the U.S. Study Center at the University of Sydney. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and culture. The University of Sydney stands on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Thanks very much to all of you for signing up for the launch of John's incredibly timely report. Let me start by saying something that seems incredible and it, that is important to hear. The pandemic will eventually subside, but the quote-unquote normal functioning of the economic relationship between the world's two largest economies will be increasingly different to what it was before. According to a new report from United States Study Center non-resident senior fellow Don, Dr. John Lee, the three Ds, decoupling, disentangling, and diversification are the likely U.S. playbook to handle the messy economic separation that's coming. But how exactly does this occur after decades of U.S. supply chain relying on mainland China? What sectors will be most disrupted? And here in Australia, what are the implications? To explore those questions, I'm thrilled to welcome all of you to the webinar here or there or everywhere because we're online after all. I'll talk with John about this report and then open it up to questions from all of you. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, for Q&A, when you're submitting questions via the Q&A chat box, please limit these to questions and not statements. I'm gonna to try to double task, multitask and sort through them, but the quicker you can get to the crux of the question, the easier it will be for us to queue it up for John. Before starting though, let me introduce the author of this report who is sitting in the proverbial hot seat today. Uh, Dr. John Lee is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, DC. From 2016 to 2018, he was the senior advisor to Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. In that role, he served as the principal advisor on Asia and for economic, strategic, and political affairs in the Indo-Pacific region. John's articles have been published in leading policy and academic journals in the United States, Asia, and Australia. He's the author of books, chapters, and numerous influential studies, including recent ones on countering coercion in Southeast Asia, co-authored with his wife, Lavina Lee, one on the passing of global economic consensus and the rise of U.S.-China technological competition, a report on the future of the U.S.-Australian alliance in the era of great power competition, which the two of us co-authored last year, and most recently, the terrific report that we launched this week at the U.S. Study Center, U.S.-China economic distancing in the era of great power rivalry and COVID-19. So welcome, John. Let's hop right in. In June last year, uh, which I remind everyone was not even 12 months ago, John and I published a report, The Future of the U.S. Alliance in an Era of Great Power Competition. The report was about how the U.S.-Australian alliance needed to change, what both Washington and Canberra needed to do differently as Beijing pursued a more internally repressive and externally aggressive set of policies. Well, the world seems to have changed an awful lot for all of us over the past 12 months certainly over the past two. John, I was hoping you could kick uh, things off uh, in the discussion today by bringing us up to speed on how things between the U.S. and Australia, China and the U.S., and China and Australia 
have changed since last June and more immediately since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic? Over to you. Well, thank you, Charles. It's wonderful uh, to, to be with you virtually again. Thank you to, uh, to everyone for uh, logging in, and I hope it will be a great uh, next hour or so. Well, Charles, when we wrote the report, we spoke very bluntly uh, and starkly about the America-China uh, relationship that was de deteriorating and that there would be difficult decisions for Australia and that in many respects, some of Australia's uh, interests with the United States may not perfectly coincide when it comes to our relationship with China. Now, with COVID-19, it's very obvious that the America-China relationship has deteriorated even further. And that's not surprising because crises tend to make things worse when you already have a poor base to begin with, not better. So deterioration in the US-China relationship is certainly leading to further uh, momentum when it comes to discussions such as economic decoupling. And I would note as well that, that discussions about the uh, relationship between Australia and China uh, are also evolving and changing very quickly. Uh, but with respect to this report, as I mentioned, we've heard a lot about decoupling uh, between the United States and China. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to imagine decoupling is because of the close intertwined economic relationship between these two, uh, the, the two largest economies. If they were not a close economic relationship, decoupling would be easy. So uh, I put out this report to try to offer a view of what decoupling will look like, what decoupling won't look like, and indeed what decoupling should look like and what decoupling shouldn't look like. Uh, I should also say right from the beginning that um, this uh, decoupling issue between the United States and China and more broadly the strategic tensions between these two countries, it's not just a case of a superpower trying to maintain its preeminence and a rising power trying to emulate or overtake the superpower. Uh, China is and remains a beneficiary of the American-led global system and the global system more generally, but a lot of its practices, particularly its economic practices, fundamentally undermine uh, this system. So, uh, the relationship between these two countries, it's not just a um, amoral one between two great power uh, rivals. It is one where important principles are at stake. Terrific. Um, let's get a little bit more specific about the report and not just the background context, John. Um, you've already scoped it a little bit, but can you give us a little bit more detail about the challenge uh, that you see in front of us, uh, both from an economic, but also from a political perspective here? Sure. Um, first of all, I just wanted to go through some um, definitions um, right from the beginning before we, we kick off. So decoupling really refers to a complete separation of, of, of things. Um, this could be supply chains, this could be markets, this could be the flow of data, capital, people, um, information, etc. That's decoupling. Disentangling really is just loosening those bonds, uh, simplifying those bonds. It may not necessarily lead to decoupling. And diversification is about finding alternatives and increasing one's resilience. Now, see, answer, answer your questions just to give some broader political context about this. Um, the United States and China, um, they both realize that 
uh, at stake, it's not just who is number one and number two, it is the shape and the nature of how the international system works. So this is not like the competition, the economic competition that was occurring between the United States and Japan in the 1980s. Uh, this economic competition now between the United States and China, it is about how governance works, what kinds of institutions um, uh, overtake those that were created after World War II uh, and, and, and so on. So what I'm trying to emphasize is that the stakes for um, what is at play here isn't just about the individual ambitions of two large nations. Uh, there are real stakes here at play for a country like Australia. Got it. Um, and thanks for walking through uh, at least the uh, kind of the outline definition of we're not talking about the same thing when we say decoupling, when we say disentangling, and when we say diversifying. And the stakes are enormous because it's not just about a bilateral relationship but about the structure of world trade, no less Australian trade, no less American trade. Um, one of the things though, which I thought was an interesting way to write this report was as you got to the back end, as you talked about three scenarios here, decoupling, disentangling, or diversifying, each of which has a slightly different connotation. Um, you also uh, said that each of these uh, are a little bit different when we talk about what's feasible, what's probable, and what's unlikely, what is just a pipe dream. Uh, can you talk through a little bit more about uh, what is feasible, what is likely to happen under any set of circumstances, and what is unlikely to happen? Sure, sure. Let me give a, a very brief or very crude summary of, of, one of the findings of the report in this context. With respect to decoupling a, a more or less complete separation, uh, you are more likely to see that in um, high technology emerging strategic sectors. So what we're seeing, for example, playing out with 5G, that is just an early taste of what decoupling in the high-tech space will look like. Uh, Bill Gates and others have spoken about the emergence of two internets, for example. That is decoupling in a high-tech space. Uh, and in, in many respects, it's easier and more feasible to decouple in that space because it's emerging. The infrastructure hasn't yet been built. Uh, and, and that is where a lot of the future divorce or separation between the two uh, economies will take place. And of course, that has implications for a country like Australia, where often we will have to choose one operating system or another operating system, the Chinese or the American operating system in that context. When it comes to strategic and critical sectors, um, so here I'm talking about rare earths, which has been identified with COVID-19, pharmaceuticals, uh, medical industries will increasingly be seen as critical, and that list will only grow. Now, with these critical and strategic sectors, you may not get completely coupling, but you'll certainly get um, desires to strengthen or make one supply chain more resilient, which really means um, moving them away from China or, or having less reliance on China. When it comes to the production of normal consumer goods, um, televisions, iPhones, these sorts of things, existing consumer goods or existing merchandise products, machine parts, it's virtually impossible to really decouple from China. You'll get some diversification for, um, for risk management purposes, but you can't decouple from China. And this is for the reason that China um, has become the central hub of traditional manufacturing. Uh, 
So just to give you one example, you take Wuhan, the area where the COVID-19 began. There are 51,000 global companies that consider Wuhan uh, or consider supplies based in Wuhan as an essential tier one supplier. That is, that is an enormous number of, um, of companies reliant on Wuhan. There are um, millions of companies who have tier two supplies based in Wuhan. And if you take the top 1,000, uh, the Fortune 1,000 uh, uh, American companies, um, around 970 of them have some level of reliance on Wuhan alone, not, not, not China, but Wuhan alone. So for traditional merchandise goods, it is not possible to really substantially decouple from China. And my argument is that we don't need to. Um, yes, you need some prudential risk management practices, but you don't need to um, completely uh, uh, decrease your reliance on China for traditional manufactured goods. Uh, interesting, okay. And that's interesting to hear the differentiation that you have between uh, kind of low tech uh, manufacturing sectors and the more sensitive uh, higher technological ends of the spectrum. Uh, actually, I, I wanna play with that because I thought when I was reading your report that one of the more interesting controversial pieces in the report was your claim that when we talk about the high end, when we talk about technological innovation, production, manufacture, uh, and position within the global supply chain, you made the claim, uh, or at least by my reading of it, uh, that China might not be the technological juggernaut that it appears. Um, now we've gotten a couple of questions already uh, from some of our viewers like Fred Chelton on this. Um, and you argue, if I'm not misreading the paper, John, that the foundations for future Chinese uh, technological sex success might actually be eroding. Um, can I ask you why you came to that conclusion and what you base it on? Well, first of all, Charles, I would never accuse you of misreading my paper. And, and yes, that is an accurate um, summation of one of the points I made. And this is not my view. There are, there are objective measurements for this. So, for example, uh, China has a very significant net trade deficit in high-tech goods. That is, it imports uh, a lot more high-tech goods or imports a lot more of the value of high-tech goods than it, than it exports. It has an enormous deficit in um, the amount it pays for intellectual property charges from overseas compared to what it charges uh, firms and countries overseas, which draws attention to... Uh, the quality of the patents being registered by China. Uh, China is by far the world's largest, or it, it, China registers more patents per year than any other country. Uh, but the argument has uh, long been made that a lot of these patents are not truly, uh, uh, are not really patent, should, should not be patent, patented. Um, and that those sorts of numbers don't really indicate uh, where China is at in pecking order. And then if you look at measurements of innovation, uh, measurements of um, uh, scientific discoveries, et cetera, China ranks far below advanced e economies such as United States, Canada, uh, European Union countries, um, Japan, South Korea. China's ranked around 15 or 16th in the world, which is not bad, but it's certainly not a global leader in innovation. Now, what China does well is, um, adopt or often will steal innovations from overseas. They will make incremental improvements on them and they will pour a lot of money into commercializing them, integrating them um, and crowding out 
international competitors in order to uh, achieve dominance in various markets. So I'm not at all dismissing China's footprint in the, the global innovation or uh, high tech space. But what I'm saying and, and what the figures show is that China uh, is not the originator of these. Um, as mentioned, often it gains them illegitimately or sometimes through forced transfers from joint ventures. Uh, and then it pours a lot of money into dominating, dominating those markets. Now, there is a broader conversation about why that's the case. Um, you know, when you have a country that doesn't respect intellectual property, uh, there is no real incentive for companies to truly innovate. Um, when you have institutions uh, that don't encourage free exchange of uh, information, once again, that does tend to retard innovation in the country. That's a different conversation, but the point is that uh, China is not the global innovation dominator that we've heard about. It's a significant presence, but it is, does not dominate global uh, innovation. Uh, okay. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about hearing more of, uh, because obviously uh, this report doesn't make the argument that China does not play an enormous role in the global economy. Of course it does. But uh, one of the things I think you very helpfully do is begin to talk about where it plays a great role and where it might not play as great a role as some think. So in light with that, I'd like to begin to shift this, John, uh, towards the implications of what your report calls for and what this means. Now, uh, for those here in Australia, uh, you might have tuned in on Monday evening to an episode of Q&A uh, about what does the world look like uh, post-COVID for Australia. One of the viewers um, um, asked the question, is the government risking our economy by causing trade tensions with China? Now, these aren't just the thoughts of a random viewer, because we've heard similar sentiments voiced by captains of industry, Twiggy Forrest and Kerry Stokes. And I'd be curious how you respond to uh, the concerns of the questioner, no less the comments that we've heard in the press as well. I, well, I suppose the first question I would ask is, let's, or the first, the way I would look at this is, let's look at the issues that are creating tensions between Australia and China, or issues that the Australian government have raised, or policies taken by the Australian government that have produced tensions. So you have the Australian government's stance on the South China Sea, of China's illegal behaviour in the South China Sea, an area where we have uh, enormous stake in terms of our trade. Um, the government has taken a very strong stance on banning Huawei from our 5G rollout because we don't trust the way uh, that data uh, is, is being used and um, held by, by Chinese entities. Uh, we have... Uh, incurred Chinese displeasure because of um, the government's uh, emphasis on trying to stop foreign interference. Um, and when we, and we, when we say foreign interference, we largely mean Chinese interference in Australian institutions and the Australian political process. Now, all of those issues, it seems to me, are vital to our national interest. They are not trivial issues. Uh, so, yes, the government has taken decisions that have uh, annoyed the Chinese government, but I would argue that they are decisions that any responsible sovereign government uh, would take. Then let me get into, I suppose, what you might call the mechanics and the psychology of economic coercion. And we all know that 
the Chinese often threaten and occasionally uh, practice economic coercion. Now, regarding the mechanics, China is heavily dependent on our uh, mineral products, on our iron ore, on our agricultural products. Uh, and it's not as if China can easily or at all significantly decrease their imports of Australian um, commodities uh, without huge detriment to their economy. So I would note with interest, for example, that the recent comments by the Chinese ambassador, ambassador Cheng, who uh, threatened economic coercion over Australia, pushing for international investigation into the origins of COVID-19. The Chinese ambassador did not mention Australian exports of commodities. He mentioned services such as tourism and education uh, and, and some, some things like beef and, beef and wine, but certainly not iron ore, certainly not coal, natural gas, uh, gas, et cetera. That's significant because China knows that it cannot actually um, significantly halt uh, ex imports of, of Australian exports in those areas. Now, on things like education and tourism, yes, clearly there is some vulnerability for us. Um, but I would argue that we're at that point where we have such an over-reliance on the Chinese market that um, um, diversification has become a risk management um, necessity, whether that be due to geopolitics, whether that be due to a pandemic or something else. That's That's just... Um, something that it, it is not uh, plausible for those industries to rely on. We should not be relying on any single market uh, to that same degree. Now, just let me quickly talk about the psychology of economic coercion. And this is where I think Australia has done really well. And I want to count, point to two counterexamples. The Japanese Hatayama government in 2009-2010 and the South Korean President Park government leading up to 2015. Now, in that situation, both those governments attempted a reset of relations with China. They deliberately softened any of their rhetoric and policies uh, um, with respect to China, even at the expense of their own national interests. And it was only when they were forced to respond in a national interest uh, in ways that, um, that annoyed China that they really incurred the wrath of Beijing. So the point I'm trying to make is that Beijing became conditioned to these countries paying um, obeisance to, to China. Uh, Beijing became conditioned to these countries um, giving in. And when these countries eventually asserted themselves to guard their national interests, which all countries do, uh, Beijing reacted with anger and fury and even a sense of betrayal. Now you take the two counterexamples, and here I would say Japan from the Shinzo Abe period onwards um, and Australia in the last two governments that we've had, the Turnbull governments and the Morrison governments. Both these two governments have been very clear and upfront about where their lines are. They have acted regardless of whether uh, China showed any displeasure um, in the first place at all. And from that point of view, both these countries are in a much better position to negotiate the terms of their relationship with the Chinese uh, in a way that's favorable to Australian and Japanese interests. Uh, and remember the psychology of economic coercion. Economic coercion is ultimately a test of one's resolve. Uh, so the more uh, you indicate that you are prepared to bend, 
the more you're going to be tested by a country like China. History brings that out. So my response to the people that say, are we endangering economic relations with China? First, look at the issues. Have we uh, raised issues that were trivial? No, we haven't. They are all vital to our national interests. And second, we've raised them in an upfront way. China will not be happy, but certainly won't be a sense of surprise or betrayal uh, from the point of view of Beijing. John, thanks for uh, bringing the counterexamples as potential models or potential lessons learned. Uh, can I actually ask you to go a little bit further on that and push that one out a little bit? Uh, because the question is, um, if the questioners have noted, if senior figures in Australian business have said, uh, stop causing trade uh, tensions uh, that harm our economic interests. Now, you, I think, have laid out that uh, it's not Australia that's causing the tension. It's responding to pressure that's there. But what about the second half of the question? So if we drill down a little bit on the South Korean and the Japanese example, which you've just laid out, when South Korea and when Japan decided to assert their sense of economic sovereignty, that there are things that were untoward that they didn't want to happen, did the economic relationship between those countries and China go into a tailspin at that point? No, it, it, it didn't. China will, China will, in, will in, in those situations, China will initially punish uh, and then note your actions. So in, in, in the case of the South Koreans, uh, China uh, pushed President Park and imposed billions of dollars of damage on the South Korean economy. Uh, but President Park found some steel. She didn't back down. She continued to maintain installation of the THAAD anti-missile systems against North Korea, which was a source of the uh, uh, disagreement with Beijing. Um, after a while, Beijing will realise that South Korea isn't going to back away. And, and what has occurred subsequently is that there is a uh, acceptable, um, um, acceptable truce between the two countries. Uh, but my point is that Beijing tested South Korea to the extent it did because it first believed that South Korea would fold. You know, when you exert uh, economic coercion in another country, you uh, do some damage to your own economy. And if you're China, you only do that if you think that that will lead to a change of policy in that particular country. Now, if that country if you don't think that country will change its policy under any circumstances, you are less likely to actually impose economic coercion on that country. You'll threaten it to, to see what will happen, but you're less likely to actually impose it because you will bear some costs yourself. Uh, we're still in the economic realm and I wanna get this as broad as possible. And in fact, others have gone broader and said, this is not only an instance uh, potentially of causing self-harm, this is uh, what you hear in Australia, uh, in the economic realm, but broader than that. Actually, earlier this week uh, in the Australian Financial Review, Hugh White argued that it, Canberra was needlessly fighting back and setting back not only Australia's economic concerns, but Australian security. And he wrote that Australia needs to learn to pick its fights and not needlessly antagonize China, and especially when Australia needs China's cooperation. Uh, he said that this is one of the lessons that he cautioned Australians to learn from the brouhaha over the last week or so. Uh, I'm curious what lessons you pull out of this similar set of incidents. You know, this principle of one should pick one's fights, particularly with a powerful, um, powerful uh, competitor, 
superficially, it makes sense. I mean, in life, of course, one should learn to pick one's fights. But let's get into the detail of what that actually means. And let's go through how this argument of picking one's fights with China has, has evolved. So there was a time um, put forward by Professor White and many others um, who have the same position. There was a time not so long ago where we were told we shouldn't pick a fight with China over Taiwan because it's, Taiwan is really important to China. Okay, let's accept that. Not long later, we were told we shouldn't pick a fight with China over its ambitions in, in Indochina because Indochina is a natural sphere of influence for China. Okay. Then we're told we shouldn't pick a fight with China over the South China Sea uh, because uh, China being a powerful nation has almost a natural right to have suzerainty over the South China Sea and over Southeast Asian nations. So I ask you, what comes next? Is it the South Pacific? Is it the Indian Ocean? Is it economic issues such as the way um, intellectual property around the world works? Um, is, it, is it over issues such as whether one is allowed to uh, give mass subsidies to one's state-owned companies and national champions to distort markets? The point I'm trying to make is that you've got to, if you don't draw the line, then you lead down this path where it is never the right time to pick a fight with China. And I return to the question, where the fights that we have picked with China, have they been worth... Um, have they been worth pursuing? And, and I would say certainly they have been. Now, the current issue is, you know, why the hell should Australia pick a fight with China over arguing, arguing for an international investigation? Uh, China won't agree to such investigation anyway. So, you know, why leave ourselves exposed? Now, let's examine that for a moment and let's examine the logic of why we should ask China for, or why we should demand an international investigation into the, into the origins of COVID-19. Now, I tend to agree with many, um, many uh, people that China would never agree to a credible investigation into the origins of COVID-19 because such an investigation would expose the weaknesses and opacity of its institutions. And it spent decades trying to conceal those. But whether China agrees to an international investigation or not isn't the point, that isn't the end game. If you raise the issue of the need for an international investigation, and of course there's a need, look at the destruction that COVID-19 has caused. If you can gain uh, some important partners in, in asking for that same investigation, which looks like it's occurring, the onus of proof is now placed on China to justify why they will not agree to an international investigation. And bear in mind, a genuine probing international investigation is much more preferable to a limited uh, investigation that will ask no real questions and get no real answers. The latter will simply just give diplomatic cover for countries like China to, um, to obfuscate as, as to what actually happened. And finally, I would ask the question, you know, why is it important to have an international investigation? One, the immediate reason is COVID-19 is about the most disruptive, destructive, destructive thing that has occurred in our generation. Surely we need to know how it started uh, so we can prevent it from, uh, um, from happening again. But the other issue is that China is putting itself forward and putting it, its governance uh, principles and its governance practices forward 
as a global, as an alternative to existing ones uh, in the international system. Now, we need to ask the question, do we want these sorts of institutions and governance arrangements and principles to um, define global institutions, such as the World Health Organization, um, or, or, or do we prefer to uh, uh, support you know, what countries such as the United States and Europe continue to support, which is um, free and open liberal institutions? The point is China is putting itself forward for global institutional leadership, and we need to know what China is selling. Um, folks, you've heard John do two remarkable things in his last answer. Uh, first, he was able to pronounce suzerainty, uh, which I, I think I muffed uh, just now, uh, which is synonym for absolute control over a particular area where everyone pays homage to you. Uh, excellent use of your vocabulary. I can see that homeschooling is going really well, John. Um, second point, though, is when we talk about international relations, not in the theoretical, not in the academic sense, uh, you've given us actually, I think, a really useful marker for how to think about how nations think about how they react to each other. Uh, there's one model that says you take a snapshot of the power that we can count, whether that's economic power, whether or not that's planes and ships, and you make your calculations simply based off of that static model. Uh, the other model, and my guess is this is probably informed more by your time in government than it might have been by your academic writing, is one that's really interactive, that how international relations play out between states, be it China and Australia or other countries, is not so much what's on the ledger as much as it is how they react to each other. Is that an accurate uh, way to think about how you think about international relations here? It is because um, what, what, one of the things I learned in government um, is that psychology matters. Um, you, can have, uh, you can have the best policies, you can have the best experts working on the best policies and coming up with the best policies on uh, 400 pieces of paper. But if you have a leadership that uh, doesn't have the determination or the resolve to see things through, a couple of things happen. First thing is uh, very little of value gets implemented domestically. But when it comes to international relations, uh, countries and governments will assess each other as to the level of resolve that they have. Um, so I, to, 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 to go to your question, uh, you know, much of my report focuses on, and much of my work these days focuses on uh, not necessarily just how elegantly the policies are stated or how much strategic sense they, um, they make, but uh, what is the psychology of the government um, at any given time, and when the government does something internationally, what are the consequences um, of its actions in terms of how other countries read that particular government? Uh, so psychology matters. We know that in our personal lives, and uh, it's not a surprise that it matters um, at the very highest levels of government and international politics. Um. Okay, I, I want to return to psychology in a second, but I, I'm just underscoring now for the third time the word suzerainty because uh, Dimitri just asked what that word was again. 
uh, suzerainty. Uh, look it up. I'm sure I have mispronounced it, but now we all have a new vocab word for the day. Uh, but on this psychological um, point, John, I actually want to talk about, you said psychology of governments. That's what you've been looking at. But of course, we're talking about a broader set of actors here. Uh, and before we move our questions a little bit broader and turn it over to everyone who's watching here, I'm curious to talk through about the implications and the psychology of those implications for what you're calling for here. Uh, can you maybe begin to disaggregate and talk sure. about what the implications might be for Australian businesses, for the Australian government, and frankly, for the Australian consumer as well? Uh, I'll, I'll focus on Australian businesses because I think this is where there is most resistance to the notion that anything should change. Now, I don't expect um, a CEO or a board of directors to be inherently interested in global politics. Um, you know, that's not what they do. They, they're there to make money. But what I would say is this, that whether what you think of Australian government, regardless of what you think of Australian government policy towards China, regardless of what you think of the Trump administration's policies towards China, regardless of whether you even think that China is a problem in a global economic system, the reality is that the relationships between China on the one hand and most countries that we trade with on the other are getting worse not just the United States, but with most of the countries that we're trading with. And we're in for a period where, of disruption. And we're in for a period where um, the logic of um, maximising the efficiency of supply chains, for example, isn't the only logic in town. So if you're a business person now, you need to get into the... Uh, psychology of risk management, which after all is what all businesses have to do. Now, traditionally businesses, of course, do risk management, but they tend to do that in terms of diversifying supplies, diversifying markets, but they do it for purely economic reasons. Now they need to understand that there are going to be geopolitical and geostrategic reasons that will impact the way countries and firms do businesses with each other. And the onus is on them to practice risk management um, um, approaches that will uh, allow their companies to uh, survive any kind of disruption or crisis. If they want to continue to deny or demone that there are problems with China, then in a sense, they're not dealing with the problem. The problem is going to be there whether they believe it should be there or not. So their role, and I think they should be assessed on this, their role is to be able to position their firms, their companies um, better in this kind of world where geostrategy is going to become a reality. Uh, John, I'm going to start uh, opening it up to the questions because we have uh, quite a long uh, queue here. And while you're talking about the interaction uh, between private businesses and the public thing, government, um, one of the questions that of course comes up is uh, not just the decisions that uh, shareholders force on their boards, that boards make uh, on risk management, but also what governments might force on businesses and particularly around, and you touch on this in your report, regulatory tools uh, that might be in the toolkit that haven't been used as much as they might now be used moving forward. So uh, I'm just gonna read a part of this question which drills down a little bit more. This is from um, 
Philip uh, Chidawicki. Uh, my apologies if I've mispronounced your last name. But uh, he asked, should the federal government here in Australia keep the change to the Foreign Investment Review Board beyond the pandemic? Uh, for those who aren't familiar, FERB, the Foreign Investment Review Board, is the government uh, entity set up to screen incoming foreign investment into the Australian economy and calibrate and decide what is an acceptable and what is an unacceptable level of risk. Uh, Philip goes on that noting growing concern over foreign investment during this period, particularly Chinese investment, uh, that would not be in Australia's national interest. Uh, so curious about the regulatory tools, particularly focused around FERB here. Um, you know, th there are really two sort of regulatory tools or barriers that the Australian government has. One is FERB and, and the other one which is related, it's a national interest test which is applied by the treasurer. And the national interest test is deliberately vague and ambiguous um, so that it can cover all unforeseen situations. Now, in the current COVID-19 um, uh, situation, I note that um, scrutiny of investment, they've dropped the level of scrutiny of uh, foreign buyers, of, of the, the scrutiny of foreign, of companies wanting to buy Australian assets, they've dropped those levels dramatically um, because they don't want other uh, companies from overseas buying distressed Australian assets at artificially cheap prices. I would note a couple of things. Um, the government publicly is committed to the rhetoric that these sorts of processes does not discriminate any country, that they are blanket rules that apply to any country. Um, I think that has to change because Everyone who works in this field knows that 95% of the problems are really about the scrutiny of Chinese firms. And the reason why that's the case is because the Chinese political economy operates in a way like no other political economy. In particular, the connection between even private firms and the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state uh, is intimate in a way that is unlike any other country. To give you one example, the foreign, in, the intelligence laws in China force any private or public firm in China to give up data, information, know-how, IP for intelligence purposes, which is defined very broadly. The security law in China says something very similar. In China, there is something called the military civilian fusion framework, which basically means that any capability by any um, private company in China can be used by the military in China if it's deemed to be essential to the military. The point I'm trying to make is that the connection between uh, economic entities in China and the party and state, on the other hand, in China is so intimate that it is unlike any other uh, trading or economic partner that we have. So to answer the question put forward by Phil, uh, I, I, I do think that when COVID-19 is over, we do need to think of, do, we do need to think about specific investment rules that relate just to China, because the reality even now is that we do actually assess Chinese firms differently to the way we assess firms from every other country. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, another one I want to take is uh, we've been talking 
Well, I guess we've been talking about three different countries. We've been talking first and foremost about Australia, but about China and the United States. And let's get broader than that, because we obviously don't only have three countries that are in the region, no less the world. And we also have viewers who are on from around the region, not just in Australia and the US. Uh, so uh, Karen Kasim asks, what are the potential spillover effects of the US-China trade decoupling or disentangling, as you put it, for emerging economies in the ASEAN, in the Southeast Asian region? It's, it's a very good question because even though uh, many of the ASEAN countries don't like trade wars, the reality is that many of them are keeping silent because some of them are benefiting. Uh, so for example, uh, we're already seeing that Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, Myanmar, Malaysia, and Thailand to some extent are benefiting because supply chains that are seeking to diversify away from China um, are moving into these countries. I would note a couple of caveats though. And the first one is that um, most, most of the supply chains moving out of China into Southeast Asia are at the sort of lower skilled or lower value end. You know, China is increasingly playing in the middle and the upper end of value creation in supply chains. So as China's um, population stagnates, it's still a very large population, but as it stagnates, it is not so interested in creating masses of low-skilled, fairly low-paid manufacturing jobs. It actually wants to dominate in the middle and higher value manufacturing jobs. And this is where it is better positioned than Southeast Asia to do that because of the scale and the um, amount of uh, foreign and domestic investment that has gone into um, higher level manufacturing. Uh, so what I would say is that Southeast Asia will benefit at that lower wage end, um, but when it comes to the higher wage, higher skill end of particularly manufacturing and export manufacturing, um, the Southeast Asians are not getting a huge uh, slice of the pie uh, there. And um, I don't think I expect, well, I don't expect them to um, become a ready-made alternative to China um, in the foreseeable future, which goes back to my original argument that a lot of traditional uh, manufacturing of, of merchandise goods uh, won't leave China for that reason. Um, following up on that, uh, you know, one of the interesting things that we've seen emerge over the last uh, week or two or three, because there have been a lot of things that have emerged that have been quite interesting, is you already pointed towards Tokyo uh, and some of the actions of the Abe government. Uh, when we talk about manufacturing uh, across Southeast Asia and what's likely to work, what's beyond, uh, you know, reality at this point, given infrastructure, uh, given uh, labor, one of the things that I found particularly interesting to watch was in their injection of um, funds to help stabilize the Japanese economy, uh, the Japanese injected 2.2 billion US dollars. Uh, I, I don't know the exact conversion rate. I think we're talking about 3.4, 3.9 billion Australian um, into a, a twofold effort. Uh, one, to help repatriate some critical manufacturing in Japan and away from China. And the second, to help diversify some of the low-end manufacturing throughout Southeast Asia. Now, both of those seem like worthy goals, uh, but what would you be looking for to assess whether or not that's 
being effective and if it's a model that other governments ought to think about pursuing as well? Um, the, the movement of lower end manufacturing out of China into Southeast Asia, um, as I mentioned, I think that will continue. It won't, it won't continue to such an extent where you won't see made in China stamped on lots of products anymore, but it will continue and it's really um, quite substantial. But as mentioned, it's really about the higher value manufacturing processes that is at play because that creates the most um, national wealth, if you like. It's, it's responsible for the, for the high wage jobs that, that much of middle and high income Asia wants. What I would look for is whether the advanced economies, the advanced like-minded economies, Japan that you mentioned, Australia, I'd put in this category, South Korea, um, United States, whether they begin to dramatically increase investments in manufacturing technologies that take away Chinese advantages. So to give an example, um, uh, technologies like robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, those sorts of technologies play to the advantages of advanced economies because you don't you don't need um, lots of low-skilled, low-paid workers to make things anymore because robots do it. Uh, but what you do is that you need the infrastructure and, and the high-tech supply chains to produce those sorts of things in your own territories or in friendly countries. So I, 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 to answer your question, I welcome the Japanese uh, um, announcement that will spend a couple of billion dollars taking supply chains out of China. But I would look at, first of all, what supply chains are they? Are they the high value creating supply chains? And the second aspect is, are they investing in those sorts of technologies that I mentioned that will allow advanced economies um, to feasibly start producing things on home soil or on the soil of friendly countries? Uh, excellent, all right. I, I'm conscious of the fact that we have only about 10 more minutes or so here. Uh, so uh, with your indulgence, I'm going to start just throwing lots of things your way so you can pick and choose because a lot of our uh, questioners are asking um, questions right now that are uh, similar, if not exactly the same. So there are two or three right now that I'm looking at, um, which all have to do with uh, people are interested in your assessment, John, about what happens to China post COVID. How does it emerge? Um, are you net positive or negative? This comes from uh, Dimitri uh, Burstein. Um, and uh, connected to that question, I think, is what is the risk? How do you assess the risk of whether or not China might react more belligerently, more militarily, uh, both during and after COVID? And final tie-in here, if that's not enough for you, uh, Mark uh, Mirowitz, uh, who's calling in or watching from uh, New York, uh, asks, what do you think, what's your assessment of Chinese soft power? Is it up or down uh, due to COVID-19 and uh, some of the PPE uh, that, it, that China has been sharing, but also some of the more uh, in-your-face wolf warrior diplomacy that's been on display in Australia and frankly around Europe as well? I'll, I'll try to sort of merge some of those questions together um, in providing uh, a couple of answers. First, I would say that I cannot see a good outcome for China when the pandemic subsides around the world. And I say this because 
you know, we have to get away from just analysing it as a US-China thing. All of the news I know, all of the headlines is about United States and China, how relations are getting worse, Pompeo is being slammed for saying the virus came out of the lab, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's all important, but other countries, apart from the United States, um, they are making their minds up about China and it's not looking pretty for Beijing. So as you mentioned, it's quite extraordinary that the Japanese would very publicly say, we're going to spend $2 billion moving our supply chains out of China. The Europeans, traditionally so reluctant to criticise uh, China, are starting to offer some sort of support for an investigation, which they know will uh, cause immense Chinese displeasure. Um, the Europeans, particularly the Germans, who are not known for antagonising the Chinese, are starting to talk about less supply chain reliance on China. Uh, countries such as the United Kingdom are starting, are openly revisiting their decision to uh, allow Huawei a partial role, a partial role in, in their 5G network. You've had the United Kingdom uh, foreign minister say that there is unfinished business with China. Yes, we'll get past this, this pandemic first, but things cannot return to business as usual with China. And, I, and the reason why I think it is so serious for China is because it is now no longer about who can build the best high-speed electric train at the cheapest cost, right? We know China's probably number one in that regard, but that is no longer the question. The question now is, do we actually trust a Chinese Communist Party govern China uh, to determine the rules of the road to lead in global institutions and frankly, to be a long-term economic partner. The economic threats that China issued to Australia played out very badly around the world for China. Um, it, 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 it's one of the things that have backfired the most for the Chinese. So that conversation has changed. It is no longer about, is it, the cheap, is it cheaper to do something in China than it is in Japan? The conversation now is about institutions, it's about the political part of political economy. Uh, and that is a conversation that is deeply to the disadvantage of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, now, I've got a short memory. There were, there were other aspects to, to the question, which, which I'm sure I haven't picked up on, but feel free to remind me if, if I've missed out on a couple of things. No, one of the things that I, I'll pick up on this, John, uh, because one of the questions was about Chinese soft power uh, in the aftermath of this. And I, I would say that it's a, it's a mixed answer that we have to give, because of course, uh, the supplies that are now being shipped across the world, China calling uh, for a cooperation and showing what it's doing are having positive effect. Uh, but that has to be balanced against other things that are happening at the same time, because no one in the world is blind, deaf, or dumb, unless they choose to be. And so what's been quite interesting, uh, I would say, if we move outside of the calls for cooperation uh, in order to combat a global health pandemic, uh, what I've noticed recently, on I've written on this, as you know, is that at the same time that China has been messaging uh, about its extending its hands to those who are afflicted, those countries that are most afflicted by this, it's also been ramping up its military pressure in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Uh, it declared a new administrative district where it gets suzerainty, there's our word again, uh, over most of the South China Sea. It named 25 new islands. It caused the sinking of a Vietnamese fishing vessel. 
Uh, the PLAN, the Chinese Navy, uh, trained its guns on the Philippine flagship. Uh, it crossed the meridian line between Taiwan and China. Uh, there's a ramp up during the coronavirus of the Chinese military actions, uh, which seems puzzling if you are asking the question of, aren't they trying to extend a friendly hand? And the question is, at least from my perspective here, uh, and I know you'll argue back if you disagree, uh, is just that the Chinese military strategy, as it is in many other areas, is quite opportunistic. And when it looks at others being distracted, uh, consumed by domestic problems, the question is, how much can it push the ball and get away with? And as you are seeing, uh, it's trying to extend a strategy that pre-existed uh, the pandemic. Yeah, um, I, I would very quickly add to that, Charles, which, which I agree. But I would very quickly add that recent history backs that up. So if you look at the periods where China became suddenly far more assertive in a strategic and military sense, um, it, it did so went from about 2008, 2009 onwards when the global financial crisis had the United States in particular on its knees. Uh, that China sensed an opportunity, as, as, you, as you argue, and it pushed, and it didn't receive a lot of pushback in return, so it kept going. Currently, the United States clearly is occupied or preoccupied with COVID-19, uh, and it has ramped up its actions in the South China Sea. Now, to answer the question that was posed uh, by one of the, the viewers here, China will go as far as China is allowed to go. I mean, the Chinese are, the Chinese can be uh, bold, but they are not completely irrational. They're not irrational. And they will go as far as they're allowed to go. If there is no pushback, they'll continue to push. If there is pushback, they will recalculate uh, and determine the, the, the costs and benefits of doing so. Uh, incidentally, this is one of the reasons why for quite a few years, I've advocated quite a strong posture against the Chinese, not because I want a shootout to occur, but I think, I think it actually decreases the likelihood of a shootout um, occurring if you, uh, if, if you demonstrate some element of resolve uh, to certain Chinese actions. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind in the conversation that we have here is not what we imagine uh, China's response to be, but what China's actual response has been. And so when we talk about uh, the threat of Chinese economic coercion or retaliation, when we talk about the threat of Chinese military coercion, we actually have to keep in mind the track record, which is, I think, what you're alluding to. Because if you look at when various nations in the security space have not hit China, but simply stood up for their own national sovereign decision-making, uh, Australia with Huawei uh, and 5G, but also the South Koreans on the decision to implement an anti-missile uh, defense system to make sure that they're as safe as they possibly can be from North Korea. When we look at the Japanese violating and pushing back against the Chinese declaration of an air defense identification zone, uh, when we look at India pushing back about what happened in the Doklam, uh, the Chinese don't always escalate. And I think that's important to know. Uh, final question here that I'd like to leave uh, John on the final word on before we wrap up. This comes from Ronald Chan. Uh, and he says, uh, do you think the fact that Australia has a large Chinese immigrant population makes the government's position more complicated? And how do you think it is handling relations so far? It's a difficult question. Um, it makes it complicated in the sense that the government has to be very careful about what its target is. 
you know, uh, there is a move towards uh, among sort of strategic types and commentators, and I think a good one, to speak about our disagreements with Beijing and our disagreements with the Chinese Communist Party uh, rather than with the Chinese people. Now, one of the complications is that China, the, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party, has very deliberately tried to weaponize the Chinese diasporas around the region, including in Australia. So one of the complications for us is that um, the Chinese view Chinese diasporas in Australia, who are Australian citizens, as their countrymen and countrywomen, and often will say to the Australian government that they will activate the Chinese diaspora against the Australian government and the Australian population at large. I think we've got to call it out. It's call that out as a bluff. There is no evidence that the Chinese diaspora in Australia has been activated um, in, in any significant way by the Chinese Communist Party. But we need to be quite brave about speaking out about what the Chinese Communist Party is seeking to do when it comes to the, the politics of race. Uh, and that shouldn't deter us from pursuing uh, our national interests, um, whether they be economic or whether they be strategic. John, uh, thanks for that. Look, one of the marks of a good webinar is that we have more questions that we can possibly get to. We tried to charge through as many as possible, uh, but I'd really like to thank you for presenting this report and for everyone who's listening right now for tuning in. Um, but what you guys don't see if you're at home is the entire terrific team we have at the United States Study Center. Mara, Janine, Suze, Mari, and Taylor, who are doing enormous amounts of legwork behind the scene to make sure that these come off without a hitch. Uh, I'd also like to thank John's children and mine for not screaming in the background here. Uh, but if you want to listen to this again, if you want to come back to this at any point, uh, the recordings of this session will be available on the U.S. Study Center website. I also want to preview, uh, please look uh, for our next webinar, which we've got coming up this next Tuesday, uh, the 12th of May, with Norm Ornstein, one of the leading political scientists and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Beyond that, thank you all so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and please visit the US Study Center website for upcoming webinars and all the publications, including most especially John's terrific report, which is up and available for download there. Thanks very much. And with that, we'll end the meeting.